Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at the purpose of and the passion for trains, planes and automobiles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including car sales figures show a slight relapse. And in our interviews, motoring and marketing expert Paul Morell discusses whether the new Suzuki Ignis can learn something from the first Minis. And a few of the Overdrive team reflect on the Suzuki Swift, especially the looks. And finally, in quirky news, Brian Smith and I cover the Canadian story of speed cameras the size of a moose being stolen. Now, you can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you might go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. So it's time to get the program going, first with the news. June car sales figures showed some recovery, declining only 6%, a figure consistent with a long-term trend, not the catastrophic impact of COVID-19. The Australian market, however, has stumbled again in July with a decline of nearly 13%. In the top 10 brands, third place Hyundai had a big decline of 34%. But on the positive side, sixth place Kia and seventh place Volkswagen had actually grown over last year's July figures. Cars made in China and imported here are up 52% on last year, although they are still only 3% of the total market. The big segment winners were small and very small SUVs and light commercial vans, all showing positive growth. Hybrid sales are rocketing, especially for SUVs. Sales of hybrid SUVs have increased by nearly 280%. That's more than three and three quarter times the sales from last year. The latest Audi A4 and A5 passenger vehicles have been announced for our market. Audi is strongly committed to their sedans and derivatives, even though nearly 67% of their sales so far this year are SUVs. The A4 includes sedan and station wagon variants, and there is an all-road station wagon made to cope with reasonable dirt road experiences. The A5, a sleeker fastback style of car, comes in either a four-door sportsback, a coupe or a convertible. Most variants have a four-cylinder petrol engine, but the all-road has an extra diesel engine option. A4s are priced from about sixty to $70,000. The A5 Sportback and Coupe cost $72,000, while the convertible is an extra $13,500. On-road costs are extra. The infotainment system has 10 times the computing power, but some features such as adaptive cruise control and lane assist are only options. Audi is working on making its vehicle fleet CO2 neutral by 2050. They will be launching around 20 fully electric models by 2025. In their home country of Germany this year, renewable energies contributed more than 50% to the electricity mix for the first time. Audi is now developing a system of bi-directional charging so that you can use the car battery for short periods to run your home or even put power back into the grid. 
Nissan has pioneered this type of system in their LEAF. One way to benefit from this technology is for consumers to charge up at night when it is cheap and then run their house from their car in the peak period when electricity is more expensive. Energy could also be put back into the grid to help overcome times when solar and wind power devices are not producing enough electricity. Nissan is giving customers the ability to pay for parking with electricity. It's only at one location at the moment, the Nissan Pavilion Exhibition Space in Yokohama. The 10,000 square metre zero emission pavilion is outfitted with solar panels and supplied with renewable hydroelectric power. The pavilion is also demonstrating other features. Their Kaya Cafe operates on power supplied by Leaf electric cars and solar energy. Nissan introduced the world's first mass-market electric car, the Leaf, in 2010. Since then, the company has partnered with governments and businesses around the world to expand the uses of electric vehicles. In Japan, Nissan has also entered agreements with local governments to use LEAF cars as mobile batteries that can supply energy during natural disasters. In another partnership, the company is repurposing used electric vehicle batteries to power streetlights. Nissan aims to sell more than 1 million electrified vehicles a year by the end of fiscal 2023. COVID-19 has made many people very wary of travelling on public transport. One of the measures to make buses and trains less likely to spread disease has been to improve ventilation. Now, a company in the UK is taking the opportunity for ventilation to the limit. Bus company Snap is currently testing a new service that would ferry Londoners to and from work using some of the city's 233 roofless tourist buses. Up till now, Snap has just run a fleet of demand buses. The service is still in development. Snap is currently going through a crowdsourcing process, taking details of people interested in the service to calculate which routes might have the highest demand. Prices are expected to run at the same cost as an average tube journey, with multiple pick-up and drop-off points for passengers, but far fewer stops than the average bus. And that has been the news. If you go back to 1959, of course, there was the launch of the Mini and there's much talk about its technology, front-wheel drive, compact space. But the thing that it did in the culture was that it changed the vision from a small car being an embarrassment to being a trendy thing. Spike Milligan drove one, for example, as did Peter Sellers, I think, and other celebrities now, you wouldn't see them getting into an Austin A40. It was the different sorts of car altogether. It was wonderfully practical, but it also hit a nerve in being different, zipping around, particularly in the urban areas. Now, can we still do that? And perhaps an example might be the Suzuki Ignis. Classified as an SUV, it is very small and it's very boxy, and there have been boxy cars that haven't worked. But can this one work? Can we pick up that notion that made the Mini trendy? Well, to talk images and marketing and things like that, who better than Paul Morell, who joins us on the line now? G'day, Paul. Hello, David. How are you? Very well, mate. You know what I mean about the Mini? 
I do indeed, David. It was it was such a classless car, and if you can use the word classless in the right sense, in that it, it transcended classes. As you say, some very, very famous people drove them who could have been driving almost any car they wanted. And, uh, and it, yes, it, it didn't... It, it was probably the first time in many ways the car didn't define its owner um, by, by, by its branding. Or its cost or its, you know, um, whether other people or how many other people could buy one. Oh, exactly. Uh, oh. As, as we said, uh, it got to a stage it almost created its own industry of people modifying them and putting wicker panels on the outside and leather interiors and all sorts of things to, to try and bring it up. But, but really, most of those people who drove them um, drove them exactly as they came out of the factory. So it was. It was a car that appealed across borders and across... across, um, and across um, yes. I'm trying to think of the word now. Um, yeah, you'll have to cut that out, David. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> Let, let's stop. We'll, 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 across... Um, across, across you, you've... You're quite right. It was classless, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was very classless in the sense of um, you had rich people driving them and you had people who could just afford them. I mean, I think from memory they were, uh, in the UK, they started about 500 and something pounds. Ford, of course, could never work out how they actually said, no, you'll never make any money on it because they pulled one apart and decided it couldn't be built for that price. Um, and I think I think British Leyland found that the same thing eventually, that they were probably selling them at a loss. But even so, it was it, it was suddenly people could afford this car, but it was appealing to a lot more people than just the ones who said that's all I can afford. And it went on to win things. Oh, it did. It did um, because of the wheels being on each corner and literally pushed out to as far of the corners. What Isagonis did when he designed that car was he wanted to maximise the interior space for the for the driver and passengers. But in fact, the uh, the unconsidered or or almost um, almost the magical response to that was that it suddenly became a very very stable car and you could throw it around. It had a little tiny motor in it, an 850cc motor in the initial stages, which then grew a little. But even then, it was you could just throw it around all over the place. And it was called a brick on wheels. And in that way, I think it was, it was. thought of as the brick lying in a typical way where it's wider than it is taller. Now, the Suzuki Ignis looks more boxy. I actually looked up the the ratios, and it's not that much different between height and width, but I think the width of the early minis didn't include rear vision mirrors, outer mirrors, and so if you were to take that into account, I think the Suzuki, which it does take into account, of course they're now standard, uh, that it would be more boxy. There are others that have tried to make a very bold statement in this very small class. I think of the Nissan Duke, and I don't think it works. Well, you see, it, it tends to polarise people. The Nissan Cube, for example, was quite, a, quite an odd-looking thing. It was asymmetrical and all sorts of strange things happened with it. The Kia Soul, on the other hand, was a much more broad-appeal car. It didn't, it didn't offend too many people. Uh, and why it didn't sell, I don't know. I mean, apart from the fact that Kia decided they wanted to sell it to young people, and in fact it was being bought by old people, that just just missing missing the target audience completely. It's not class leading technology, yet it, it it does the thing that the Suzuki did with the four wheel drives. It, again, it's back to this point about not being pretentious. It's not big and lumpy mm. and macho. 
But it happened, the early Vitaras, for example, happened to be very, very practical who could go places that some larger of four-wheel drives couldn't get near. That is the epitome of where this is really aiming, isn't it? As to whether they might be able to make that their message, their their image, their brand is being different, which is a shame because the Vitara now has morphed into a run-of-the-mill sort of SUV, hasn't it? Yes, yes, it has. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, the way cars change, and they sometimes lose sight of their of what was successful in the first place. I mean, the new Jimny, for example, seems to have really captured, recaptured, if you like, the what made the original Jimny and whatever it was called when it was the when it was launched such a success. It's just a great little thing, and and it's, the Ignis is marketed and played with the same way. It fits into that same category. But people, as you and I both know, people buy cars emotionally. They don't buy cars rationally. Otherwise, you and I would be out of a job. (laughs) Could be tested by a robot. (laughs) Exactly. If I made it an electric vehicle, would that make it better for sales? The Ignis, I mean. Oh, yeah, it would be an interesting one. I did have... I did have a chap talk to me once who was he wanted to he wanted to start an electric car industry here in Australia a long time before it became you know, as popular as it now is. And he said to me what, what cars would suit as a you know, he was talking I think about, you know, Renault uh, sorry, Citroen two C Vs or something and I said, No, 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 you don't want Citroen two C Vs, you want something as as modern as you can afford and at that time we talked about the Mazda one two one bubble car, which would have made an ideal electric car as a as an aftermarket conversion. And yes, the Ignis would be an ideal little electric car, particularly since it's a town car as well. Yes. See, that lovely point you made that the Ignis is actually probably being sold to an older demographic simply because it's got a little bit of character, it's got enough room, and it doesn't want to chuck wheelies everywhere. Mm. Well, purely anecdotally, I must admit, I have seen virtually all sorts in Ignises. I mean, I've seen everything from, you know, 16-year-old young ladies to... I don't see too many blokes with baseball caps on backwards in Ignises, but that's a fact of life. But yes, you're right. It appeals It appeals broadly. It appeals to young buyers. It appeals certainly to older buyers. And it has the practicality in many ways to appeal to even, even family buyers, although that's purely guesswork on my part. But, you know, it has the space inside if you had, you know, one or two young children as i said it's not like you're giving up huge space you don't really need a commodore wagon or a a land cruiser suv it's called an suv possibly because they like that idea because the suv has the notion of being a bit taller that you don't have to slink down into it it is more an issue with older people says i with a degree of experience in this regard it is more of an issue than uh, it is with with young people. So again, without limiting yourself, you should think that there's a broad range of demographics that might be able to take that on. Absolutely. And as I said, I think you know, Suzuki have proven this, that the Swift has incredible appeal across almost everyone, and that does include young blokes. Paul, it's always lovely to talk to you. Uh, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure, David.
And that was Paul Morell from Senior Driver Oz, as in Senior Driver one, all together, and Oz as in Australia, A-U-S. And that is, of course, website.com.au. Great range of features and a great variety of information, not just revhead road tests. This is Overdrive across Australia. Suzuki first produced its Swift model in the year 2000. With their second generation of the model, which went on the market in 2005, it had a more distinctive style and Suzuki was moving its image away from a low-priced typical runabout to a sportier compact. In our interview with Paul Morell, we discussed how the Swift can appeal to a wide range of people. This week we have been driving the latest Swift Sport Series 2. It has a few sports design features, but first and foremost, the one we had was a rich bronze colour with a second-tone black roof. We drove it to the artist area in the barracks precinct at Northhead in Sydney. We placed the car next to some giant sculptures of human heads that looked a bit like they were from Easter Island. I spoke to our resident artist here at Overdrive, Dean Oliver. Dean, a very strong colour. Is it too strong? I like the the colour, David. It's a, it's a different kind of colour than what we normally see, and what a what a pleasure to see cars which are not grey, black, or white. And, mm. and here's a rich coppery bronze, which is uh, I think really lovely. Uh, the black uh, highlights accentuated, and the blackness has even got a bit of sort of metallic finish to it, which uh, in the pillar, yeah, which gives a lustrous uh, effect to the car. And I think it's very impressive. Do you think it suits the shape of the car? Yes, I do. Um, I think, it, yes, it fits better. Uh, some of the smaller Suzuki's used to, there were some horrendous colours, weren't there? Acidic yellows and uh, really strong, vibrant, you know, high-vis high, high vis greens and things like that. And here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a strong, bright colour, but yet it, there's, a, there's a lovely richness about the colour. You and I grew up in the 70s when there was candy apple green and those <laughs> sorts of colours. Colours like lettuce alone and... <laughs> <laughs> oh, what was it? Um, Plum Dinger Purple. Yeah, and Chateau Mauve, uh, which, which had a, a wonderful, rich, uh, opulent sort of sound about it for, for an old HQ Holden. Was, uh, well, this has a more iridescent look, doesn't it? It has a richer, almost third-dimension look to it. Uh, yes, it does, yeah. And, uh, and it, it, I think it, it helps a small car to look just that bit bigger, and uh, it gives it a, a nice presence on the road. Mm. The back, it's not over the top. Yet it's got enough sort of sporty features? Yes, it's got the two exhausts and it's got that sort of uh, uh, diffuser object. Uh, mm. uh, the Formula One designer that let those things go into motor cars, uh, I think he needs to be called, called to, to, <laughs> to, account. to account for that one. <laughs> I mean, Suzuki's, yeah, okay, let, let's give them a diffuser for the, for the rear. But, uh, uh, the styling is, is nice. There's round, uh, the forms are rounded, which is good. Not too much chiselling and sharp edges. Um, not a great fan of the back door. That rear pillar in the back door, I think, would restrict adults um, looking out the windows. Uh, haven't sat in it yet, but probably a space for, for children rather than adults. The lack of a door handle, but rather one in the, the upper part of the door, does that add to a two-door look, or is it a little bit pretentious um it certainly adds to it, it it's following on i think it was alfa romeo and some of the european brands have pioneered that kind of style yes I, look i like it. it it immediately it doesn't say i'm a four-door car it, you think oh it's a it's a two-door it's a coupe 
and then in the dark you're fumbling for the way of getting into the to the back uh, the back door. Dean, you're an artist. Does the sculpture is that part of your appreciation? <laughs> Here we are in amongst these wonderful totemic uh, heads and uh, looking confidently to the future. And uh, and here's our little Suzuki Swift uh, in in front of them, uh, also a totemic kind of figure in itself. <laughs> a little bit Easter Island, really, isn't it? <laughs> they do, yes, staring blankly towards the horizon yeah. and being weathered away by by uh, by time. <laughs> Sort of symbolic of you and I. <laughs> That's right, David. Children of the 70s, here we are, staring blankly into the future. <laughs> Confidently, though. Confidently into the future. <laughs> to get another perspective, we spoke to Pamela, who had just been standing beside a huge sculpture of a naked man. Pamela, you said you liked the colour. I do. I like the burnt orange and the black. I like that combination um, in clothing, and I think it works extremely well in this car. It gives it a sort of um, sporty, jaunty look. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. And the wheels are really quite spectacular. You don't like them? Um, no, no, they're fine. I just, it's not something my eye would have caught. But um, oh. now that you've pointed them out, yes, no, they're very, very nicely shaped. The front nose is a bit aggressive. That would be my least favourite part of the car. I don't like it. It's too. Sh- it finishes too quickly. Oh, okay. Okay, it's a bit short and sharp. Short and sharp. Yes, don't don't like it. I'd, I'd like it a bit more aerodynamic. I think. And it's a bit droopy. Mm, it's blunt. Blunt is how I would put it. I notice your your vision of things that yeah. Yeah. yeah the shape yeah. is important. When I wasn't looking at the car. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so, so it's too small. Size is a problem. <laughs> Pamela's now walked off. I do hope you can edit this. <laughs> we mentioned the wheels, which are getting much more attention these days than they might have in the past for their looks. Our racing correspondent, Fred, discusses why, with modern rims, it's hard to see how big the tyres are. Fred, you drove old Monaros of the 70s where 13-inch five-spoke mag wheels were really big. We've come a bit of a way with mag wheels? Uh, a little way, yeah, given these are 17-inch. They're on much much lower profile tyres, of course, so the overall diameter could be similar, but <laughs> the wheel itself is way, way bigger. Stylish-wise, do you... Do you think we've come way? Because here you've got both black and silver, so they're mixing their their tones, aren't they? Well, in years gone by, they did have ones that maybe had black spokes and chromed around the edges, chrome rims. So you did get certain colour combinations, but I think it's more the um, more the dishing that you don't get these days. So visually, you look at them and you think, oh, they don't look that wide. Whereas reality is, they are as wide. It's just that the offset where they mount on the vehicle hub is actually in a different location. So, in yours, the old hub was inner more, and so you yes. you perceived the width where it went to the nuts was in in a bit. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm. In a nutshell, yeah, that's quite right. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, and that comes down to front wheel drives, particularly. You have the uh, mounting face further outboard. Then you've also got to fit your your brake caliper under the wheel so uh, that means it dictates where the spokes can be on the wheel mm. so you don't get the the perception of how wide they are just looking at them from the outside i mean some people prefer the look of a, a flat 
flat wheel with a nice sort of shiny face. If you look at it from the point of view of thinking that's a wide wheel, you don't really get that perception. Mm. This has probably got bigger disc brakes than you had uh, rim diameters, is not it? <laughs> Good chance, yeah. <laughs> and finally, for the record, the Swift Sports Series 2 has a 1.4-litre turbo engine, a six-speed manual or a six-speed automatic transmission with paddle shifters, comes with multimedia satellite navigation, reversing camera, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, and it has a digital speedo. It has been crash-tested this year and received a five-star rating. That is very credible. Horsepower is not huge, 103 kilowatts, and the torque is 230 newton metres. Prices start from $30,000 plus on roads. We will have some driver impressions in later programs. You're listening to Overdrive. And for the last segment of the program, let's go to our good mate, Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Quirky news. There is a story around of we're talking about people who have an aversion to radar cameras and the notion that they don't like them. Well, in Toronto, the police are now looking for someone who stole one. Now, you might say, okay, I understand that, except... The whole device weighed 362 kilograms, about 800 pounds in the old scale. It was a photo radar machine. And so now the police are on the lookout and also with a great perplexity as to how in the heck they did it. Is this something for CSI Miami or something, Brian? Well, David, what um, more CSI sort of uh, British Columbia or something like that, I think they... The thing that appealed to me most about this story was um, how they described the weight of the speed camera being as heavy as a moose. And this would be a very Canadian way, <laughs> wouldn't it, to measure how heavy something is. How heavy is it? As heavy as a moose. <laughs> that, and I wondered whether, um, you know, it just struck me that the quirkiness of this sort of regional sort of measure. I know we, we talk often about uh, volume and, you know, uh, equivalents of uh, Olympic swimming pools or Sydney harbours and stuff like that. But I think the animal sort of thing um, is, is quite worth uh, following up, sort of like the Australian version, you know, how many kangaroos might it be? Cars are measured in horsepower, mm. which, by the way, one horsepower does the work of one and a half horses. Does it really? Yeah, I think James Watt calculated what it was, but he was trying to sell his engine, so he sold a four-horsepower engine that would do the work of six horses. Oh, that's was a, a bonus. You replace your six horses with this four-horsepower. I thought it was like some kind of like transfer rate, like, a, like an exchange rate when the value of horses is declining <laughs> once the vehicle came. And the horses are getting smaller or something. Well, one would think that perhaps measuring horsepower now, you would hope that horses live better lives. How would you try and find it out? Surely it needed a device. To steal this giant 360 kilos. I mean, yes. Um, the other thing is you're moving a camera. So at some point, potentially you're getting captured by the the video and I wonder whether it's it's obviously storing the the images in the device or something there's been five of them stolen so I'm not sure whether it's I imagine it's people not wanting to be speed tested 
but uh, what are they doing with them? And you're right, David, you would need some friends and you need probably a pretty big truck or something to, to move them and maybe even a crane to lift them up. They're worth 50000 Canadian dollars each. Forklift or something. Surely there's got to be tyre prints or, or footprints from 50 people. Well, not 50, but you, you know what I mean. A lot of people walking around. And not that that solves the problem necessarily, but if it was on television, it would be solved immediately. But it represents a great desire to remove these things, although they are somewhat portable, aren't they? Well, they are intended to be moved around, but not by members of the public. What they're going to have to do is, in future, they're going to have to make them the weight of two mooses. <laughs> Look, I, I think they need to get the Mounties involved. I think Dudley <laughs> Do-Right or somebody like that. Uh, you definitely need someone like that on the case to track this thing down. Dudley Do-Right will be following people with big overcoats that are bulging in a funny way. I meant that in terms of, you know, hiding something under the coat. Yeah, me too. All right, Brian, thank you for that. And uh, we'll be on the lookout for suspicious behaviour. Catch-ups next time. Bye-bye. And that's Brian Smith here on Overdrive where we were talking about some rather determined local response to camera surveillance of your car in Toronto. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rob Fraser, Pamela Brain, Dean Oliver, Brian Smith, Fred Brain and Paul Just for their great help during the programme. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>